when when these policies don't work out, they're held up as failures of socialism. I think these are successes of socialism. I think socialism aims at making everyone equal, whether that's equally poor or not is never defined. But there's there's egalitarianism. Um, the workers' revolution, quote unquote, is happening. I think one should change the conversation and terminology completely and say, but by your own definition, these are the ends that you wanted. You wanted people to be equal. Hi, everyone. I'm Petres, and welcome to Worldview. Worldview is a podcast where we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. If you're watching our content so far and liked it, please consider liking, subscribing, and donating on Patreon. Today, we're talking with Chris Hutton. Chris has a Bachelor's of Arts from Rhodes University and a Master of Philosophy from Salabosch University. After serving as a researcher and a project manager at the Free Market Foundation, he currently holds the position of its Deputy Director. He is the author of published articles on consumer rights, economic freedom, inequality, and individual freedom. Chris, welcome to the show. Pietras, thank you very much for having me on. It's a great pleasure to be here. You know, um, we've we've talked a couple of times with people that well, was like you know, the the co-founder or so of a company, and then we asked them to tell the story of that company or perhaps a little bit of a history. But as somebody that actually worked at the Free Market Foundation and worked your way up to the point of deputy director, I thought you might actually have a unique position or unique perspective on the company as the fact that you've actually worked as a researcher, then as a project manager, and so on and so forth. So could you just tell us a bit about the history and the goal of the Free Market Foundation from your perspective? Well, I'd, I'd love to. So the FMF is a classically liberal a think tank. Uh, we were founded in 1975 during, you know, the struggle against apartheid. The FMF sort of found its voice and it, that was its sort of heyday advocating against those policies of the National Party government. So the FMF continues to now work on areas such as consumer rights, property rights, land reform. Uh, a big issue now is expropriation without compensation, of course. So generally commentary and research into government policies that we think infringe on matters such as individual liberty, individual agency, uh, human action. We try and, f and figure out and find out what impact policies will have on taxpayers. Of course, South Africa's tax base is shrinking by the day, it feels like. So those sorts of effects of bills and laws and policies advocated by the government. And generally, we try and influence the public discourse and discussion in a direction of individualism, the rule of law, and respect for your fellow man. Mm, yeah. I mean, we've seen a lot of, I also want to say, like, we obviously, we went through a period of time in the apartheid era where information was relatively sparsely available for people in terms of political information, and the discussions weren't as freely had, to a situation where social media has kind of, you know, completely throw the apple cart about and people who are both educated and uneducated in terms of laws and different type of details can all participate in the discussion and at least, you know, the discussion is being had. But this kind of leads a lot of people to have a lot of doubt because there's so much chaos. Do you ever see like a, a liberal order in South Africa really emerging? I mean, like at the moment, it just feels like the past hundred years has just been this battle between fascism and socialists, you know? I think that'll, that'll continue going. I think if one takes a sort of meta perspective. You can see throughout history the sort of tension between individualism versus what I would term collectivism or statism. I think those two things are always sort of in conflict and in tension with each other. If you, It depends on the day that you talk to me when I might be more pessimistic or optimistic when I'll say, you know, the days of individual freedom are long behind us and then another day I'll, I'll be very optimistic. I think if one looks at the data around 
the improvement of quality of life around um, longevity, you know, women living longer, people, even in Africa, people not dying in childbirth, for example, or dying before the age of 20. All of those metrics are improving slowly but surely. So in that regard, I see progress, but there's there's always a battle. And I think 2020 probably exposed that the most with the COVID-19 pandemic. And for however strongly one feels about the virus itself, how much it exposed how governments want to you know take the lead quote unquote and protect us from all sorts of threats so it shows us that liberty is always under threat i think if people realize just how much they can do amongst themselves with their communities organizations civil society that kind of thing how much more good they could accomplish instead of giving the sort of power to the state to decide everything for example whether chicken should be allowed to be sold, whether e-commerce should be allowed to happen, whether you can buy flip-flops or not. It's sort of reached that point of absurdity. It's no longer just strong liberals who make this caricature of state action. It's actually happened where the state mm. has done this stuff. So you you sort of see, if you can draw the connections and the lines for people, you can indicate just what happens when you allow the state to grow to the point where it has. So I want to say I'm optimistic and I think... In, in incrementally we can see progress in different areas there's always the chance that it's going to be reversed especially with issues such as expropriation without compensation populism you know politicians i think at the moment it's becoming a game of which party can give you the most goodies kind of thing so if before every election they're going to promise x y and z to you in the hopes of getting your votes we need to move away from that paradigm completely otherwise i think it'll become worse and worse and worse the stakes will become higher and then you'll see a gradual erosion of individual liberty yeah and we have the situation where it's like the the concept of globalization in terms of the worldview in general improving um, i don't know if you read the gates notes uh which is for the mm -hmm. gates foundation's notes okay you do read them okay yeah. so i mean they they when when they I think launched them a couple of years ago, the whole reason why they created it is to show people that there are you know slowly but surely steady improvements in a lot of things, especially in stuff like uh, percentages of child um, um, child deaths, you know, or infertile deaths and stuff like that, and you know the the lowering of certain pandemics. You know, obviously 2020 was a bit of a you know it, it threw a screw into the generator, but you know it's it's kind of like it. Generally, things are getting better on a global view. And I think the problem might be that people, they needed to see that, to see that things are improving and the work being done is good. But at the same time, they don't really feel like, okay, that's, it's not happening here in South Africa, for example. It's, it's it globally working out. So perhaps what perspective do you have on if the global situation is good for everyone or if there is still a scenario where, sure, global is improving, but locally it's not improving? You know, where's, where's, where's the pessimism and optimism lie in that regard? I think from a global perspective, all governments, I think I can say categorically, okay, maybe with the exception of one or two with their with their um, their pandemic response, they all lean towards the side of authoritarianism and interventionism from from the origins in China, where the Chinese government denied the existence and repressed information to the US, which you know is, is often held up as the beacon of liberty and individualism. I mean, they're, they're also engaged in, in a hard lockdowns, that kind of thing. We saw what happened in New York when the mayor um, Cuomo, you know, in, with the, the old age homes and that kind of thing and, and forcing people to stay in those areas where they were more vulnerable to the virus when they should have been allowed to maybe be with their families or something similar, at least out of the cities, not all concentrated in, in little pockets kind of thing. So 
I think it depends on how big the perceived threat is, then any government around the world is going to use that as an excuse to exert its power and to increase its power. And I think it was Milton, it might have been Milton Friedman or Hayek, one of the two who said, you know, there's no such, you will never find a, a government giving up the power that it has gained. You, you'll mm. never see governments shutting down the programs that they started in the first place. So you should never give them an excuse to do that. So I think after the pandemic, a lot of politicians are worried about globalization, about uh, sort of interconnectedness, the issue of supply chains, value chains, uh, trade, immigration, especially. So depending on, I, I think it's in the balance. I think it could go in one direction where we have the erection of more barriers, of more difficulties around movement of people and trade, or we could go in the opposite direction, which I think would be more to everyone's benefit and more prosperous if we go in the direction of increased interconnectedness and trade. So I think that hangs in the balance. I'm not going to presume to gaze into a crystal ball here and tell you it's definitely mm. going to go in one way or the other. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Franz Cornier at the Institute of Race Relations, and he mm. you know, does a lot of scenario planning. And, and around South Africa, he presents four scenarios. So I think Globally, there's at least two things go very well, or I think badly. I think at the moment, it's sort of, I think after 2020, it's leaning a bit more in the the protectionist bad route where countries put up barriers, I think. But couldn't that actually just have the exact opposite effect? So like, the, I mean, the optimistic way of looking at this is that because countries are putting in this protectionism, authoritarian approach to how they deal with it, and people realize, hey, this is you know not a good thing. Like that, there, there was a use for this maybe at the start, and then they realize, okay, but there's a lot of the grounds in which these authoritarian actions are not founded upon, and then that makes them react against it strongly again. So you have like a kind of a you know the pendulum swings one way, and then it really swings hard back the other way. Is that not a possible like optimistic way of looking at it, or is that a bit naive perhaps no i think it's a very good point i think <laughs> it depends on whether people can make the connections so right. i very much agree with you the i mean the data is there the facts are there but you know people attribute different things i think different causes to different phenomena and phenomena that they see in the world so for let's say for example we go the bad direction and in 50 years or 100 years time our children and grandchildren are you know are in a much worse off position in South Africa, the the causes might be attributed to apartheid or colonialism, as is often the case. You know, there's sort of this fallback of of blaming different things, which I don't think are the actual causes of some problems. So, if one can explain the the links and the causes properly, I think yes, you're right. There could be potential for serious prosperity in the future. But, you know, that's a bit tenuous at best. And there's a lot of, you know, misinformation, populism, um, appeals to emotion. I think yeah. just looking at the universities is one example. I'm going off a bit. I'm going off now off the N1 into the into a small town somewhere in the Karoo. But the, the universities are becoming areas of emotion over reason. So it's a lot of feeling, a lot of lived experience, a lot of that kind of thing, whereas discourse around. I don't know, different ideologies, policies, data, that's not happening so much anymore. It's becoming a case of this is my experience and therefore that trumps, you know, centuries of philosophy and economics and history and all that kind of stuff. So if if one looks at where the universities are going, I, I wouldn't be very optimistic about the sort of general direction of society. But as I say, if one can make these links for people, maybe there's the potential for good, uh, good progress in the future.
Well, you, you likely alluded to this. This is the next topic I wanted to talk about. But, um, you know, in comparison to perhaps an emotional or, uh, you know, a gut reaction to this, you also have the opposite, which is possibly a logical either or a, an objective uh, view on this. So could you just quickly tie us to the connection between classic liberalism and um, Ayn Rand's uh, objectivism and what the differences are? Could you perhaps explain also what his objectivism is? So objectivism in a nutshell, um, is the philosophy formulated by Ayn Rand. She was a Russian author who moved to the US uh, in the 19, I think the 1940s, 50s, around there. Um, she wrote books such as Atlas Shrugged, The Fountainhead, Anthem, uh, We the Living. And very quickly, objectivism holds that your life, your happiness, your values should be of highest importance to you. So that doesn't denote that you should use other people to get those values, but it says that you should place those things as, as your highest fulfillment. So whether that's being a CEO or a manager or a janitor or a sportsman or an actor, being the best at that role that you can be and that giving you happiness should be the, the ultimate goal um, of your life. There's a, a concept in objectivism known as rational selfishness. Now, you know, and, and, and in society generally selfishness is assumed to be destructive so for rand it's not just about going after your whims like if you want to really eat a piece of cake today that doesn't mean it's actually to your values if your health is your highest value then you know you need to give up some of these smaller things that might give you immediate happiness and satisfaction for long-term satisfaction over the course of your life and gaining I don't know, for example, being uh, having a certain type of body composition over a long term means, you know, incrementally, you can't every day have a whole cake kind of thing. So it's having a long term view of your life, um, placing your values at, at high importance. And I think a serious emphasis on agency and um, individual sort of potential, realizing that you live in this world, you have your reason, you have your mind, you have your senses, of course, everything that you perceive um, and hear around you that comes to you through your auditory um, senses. So you need to use those and realizing that you have this potential. It's not to say that you're perfect in any way. I mean, we're human beings, so we're fallible, but you need to use the tools that you have and to improve your life. So whenever, mm. what, in whatever way you can, uh, you should do that. So that sort of objectivism, I, I see it as a part of the classical liberal tradition of individualism, right. the rule of law, um, individual rights, that kind of thing. Um, it's a, it's sort of its own, I guess it's a bit on its own because of its um, focus on selfishness. I think for libertarians and classical liberals generally, there's more of a focus on the politics and the policy side of it, whereas objectivism has a lot to say about you know, you as a human, your values, your agency, and what should be the right, I guess, way to view that. Uh, Rand took a lot of inspiration from Aristotle. She saw him as, I would think, the greatest philosopher in the history of, of the Western canon um, and a few others that she would have sort of looked up to, but Aristotle would have been top of the list. And she tried to formulate a lot of her stuff going out of, I think, what he he wrote about and talked about. Hmm. This is also something I'm just like personally a bit curious about, but there is kind of a weird situation where, so so we have like the different generations and older generations very much like to look at, you know, my age, which is about, I want to say, you know, 25s and down or whatever, uh, or 30s and down. And you'd say they're, they're the I generation. So they're like very individual focus. They're all about me and what I want and what I want to do in my life. And that's 
in the classical conservative mentality, that's seen as a very bad thing because you should put yourself last and everybody else first and that's the way that that works. So perhaps is there a connection between the emotional I want, I feel offended, I, you know, uh, mentality and individualism that classical liberalism um, represents that might be confused with each other? Because perhaps they could use classical liberalism to now think, oh, I should be focusing on the visual. This is the smart, logical thing to do. And then they twist that into what I just explained earlier. I think the sort of individualism espoused by someone like Rand um, would be, and I touched on this before, would not be about the the sort of primacy of the moment and the primacy of feelings, but more about the primacy of facts and objective reality. So despite me sitting in a university lecture hall, if a, if a professor says something and I'm very offended by it, that's my that's my immediate feeling about it. And your feelings and emotions are important. They tell you something about your values. But you need to be able to sort of step in a way outside yourself, step a bit back and evaluate them on a level playing field and see whether your emotions and feelings are reasonable or not, what they tell you about yourself and the world around you. If you, I don't know, if you're married and you see your wife talking to someone and you feel very jealous, your feeling tells you something about yourself and your relationship with her. And you can find out whether you, whether that judgment was right or not. You can figure out in what context she was talking to him, that kind of thing. So I think it's important to always have a perspective of evaluation, thinking, assessment. And Rand herself, I think, would have said, you know, whatever she would have written, she she didn't want anyone to take at face value what she sort of espoused. So it's up to each of us to evaluate her philosophy and her ideas and assess them for ourselves. So I think you're right about the confusion around individualism in the classical liberal sense and what we see now with sort of quote unquote millennials and Gen, Gen Z and that kind of thing. Um, and it's it's up to each person to sort of figure this out for themselves. I think one can, if you look at other people's lives, you can generally, and we're not in each other's shoes, of course, so we can't speak for each other's motivations 100%, but you can see over the span of someone's life, the kind of life that they lived and did they, did they try and evaluate things well or did they engage in destructive behavior? Did they step on other people to get where they wanted to go? Did they pull other people down? Um, that kind of thing. How do they treat people around them? I think whatever one's philosophy is, whether your personal ideology is Christianity, whether it's objectivism, whether it's Buddhism, you know, classical liberalism, you can say a lot about how someone sees their own philosophy and how they interact in the world and how they engage with other people. So do they respect other people as agents, as classical liberalism does, or do they just see them as means to an end? Do they just use them for whatever they want? I don't know, maybe someone wants to like a, a Bernie uh, Madoff, well, Bernie Sanders as well, but Bernie yes. Madoff, you know, who who eventually got caught in his own lies, even though he made so much wealth for himself, eventually he went to jail. So his actions caught up with him. Um, Rand, she used, she also said that uh, one of her favorite sayings for me is A is A and reality is what it is. So you can try and evade the consequences of reality. You can, so if, if I'm again in the university context, I engage in destructive behavior, I can, Try and avoid the consequences of that but eventually it's going to catch up to me and i have to then bear the consequences thereof so i think it's important yeah. to keep in mind how people act in the world and then you can that sort of indicates to you what they think of themselves and people around them yeah i think i think um her entire message of objectivism and taking it into territories is as important as the message of um individual you know 
being introspective, thinking about the way that you absorb things, thinking how you incorporate it, because it may be very easy to nitpick it. But as you just said, the idea as a whole actually ascribes a lot of factors to it that you should take into account, which you know, it can be very easy to, to nitpick the parts you like out of it and then say, okay, of course I'm a liberal, you know, or a classic liberal rather. You know, of course I'm a classic liberal, this is what I want to use. Um, but I want to pivot back a bit to um, originally talking about classic liberalism. What do you think is, um, perhaps in the South African context, but also just in the global um, context, because obviously liberalism is, you know, centuries old. Um, what do you think is the biggest obstacle to realizing the agenda of classic liberalism? And like, what, 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 what prevents sound economic policies from being followed, for example? Asking a philosopher <laughs> a very like abstract, open-ended question. I think two things. It could. I think it's fear and hubris. So on the part of of people generally, I think people are are afraid of freedom. People are afraid of personal responsibility and. Uh, and having to take ownership of your life. I mean, living is, it's, it's difficult. It's no one said it was going to be a cakewalk. And if you don't have a strong safety net, for example, on the part of the government, a lot of it falls to you and your family. If, for example, you grew up in a broken home, you know, then you really feel like it's you against the world kind of thing. So that also has an influence on, on your sort of fear of the world in terms of hubris. I definitely think politicians, governments, bureaucrats, they seem in general and this isn't to all of them but in general to think that they have this sort of insight and knowledge into how society should be run into how communities should be run groups um they think you know what might work in one traditional society works in everything else and therefore every everything should should sort of run and work like that and i think that's some level of hubris i mean for you and i and maybe you're a lot more organized than I am. So this isn't to you personally, but day to day, I mean, some days I can't even decide what I want to go eat for lunch. I mean, I'm generally indecisive. So maybe I just don't know. But to think then that you can extrapolate that on the South African meta level for 60 million individuals and that someone sitting in Pretoria or Cape Town can know exactly what are the best decisions for each of us to make every day. I think that's, that's a level of hubris that is very dangerous. Um, and it, despite the failures of government, again, like we've seen with COVID-19, they still seem to think that if you just give them more money and more control, they can solve the world's problems. I would argue that governments have been growing incrementally for the last decades. And one sees the effects of that in South Africa, especially you see rising unemployment, rising poverty, hunger, hopelessness. And that's because the government has simply kept on growing and trying to intervene and control more of our lives. When you have bigger government, you're, you're inevitably going to have lower economic growth and prosperity. So to sort of counter those things, the fear and hubris parts, the fear part, you need to, I think, present a picture of, of action and agency and ownership to individuals that they can do a lot for themselves in their own capacity and they can and probably should do a lot with themselves and their communities, the people around them who know how things work on the ground. Someone who lives in Kailicha knows a lot better what challenges they face on a day-to-day -day basis that, than I do, for example, and then someone in Pretoria does. Um, and then on the hubris part, I think trying to sort of explain to governments that in trying to dictate to us, nudge us in certain directions, guide us, quote unquote, lead us uh, 
um, they cause a lot of unintended consequences that are often negative and devastating. So, hmm. yeah, there, there's always a ripple effect. I think there's never it's never black and white when a, a policy or a new bill it gets introduced. I mean, the policy itself might have the fanciest language. Expropriation without compensation can be all can be ostensibly all about land reform and restitution, but its effects are going to be a lot more devastating than I think the designers thereof um, understand. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I like the fact that you used a fear and hubris specifically, because if you look through the lens of history, you know, and some of the old classical tales and mythologies that stood the test of time, a lot of the Greek ones, which are the father of the philosophers, are about fear and hubris and how how it like pretty much you know, led to the downfall of somebody that was truly great. So this really is this perspective of if you're, for example, a politician and you think like, okay, you know, a lot of the people that are currently politicians are doing it really wrong. I can do it right because I have this idea and you might be, you know, the pure embodiment of good, but the yeah. stories tell us that, you know, that type of power, that type of scenario, you know, corrupts and then hubris gets a hold of you again. Um, I want to, I want to focus on, um, Specifically, I mean, okay, we're, we're going along the, the political element, the voting element specifically now um, of classic liberalism, but there is a scenario where you said that representative government just isn't isn't really showing that the person in Pretoria can relate to everybody in the country in terms of the decisions that they make for them. Do you think then that perhaps there is a voting system that would better allow South Africans to be represented and actually provide progress for them in their environment? Like, you know, portional reputation, a portionable, portional representation or perhaps first past the post, you know, a scenario that perhaps would require some segmentation of the country in terms of the way it's voted and managed to actually apply the rules that fit to those sectors. Does that work or not? So that's a, I think that's a good policy question, a good technical question and something that I don't know if I would portend to speak on my, my perspective would go a little bit, just a few steps further back where regardless of the system that you have, I mean, you could, for example, have South Africa divided up into four or have each province do its own thing. I don't know exactly how you do it, or maybe certain cultural areas. So for KZN would be the Zulu kingdom kind of thing. And then you have the Western Cape secede as apparently many people in the Western Cape want to do. Uh, and then just leave the rest of us just before you secede, let me get there first <laughs> before that happens. Um, it's a matter of what's up for discussion and what's up for votes. So you can have the system that we currently have, but individual rights, I don't think should ever be the subject of a vote. Um, you should never have the case where the majority majority can vote away someone else's property rights, for example, you should, the government shouldn't have that level of power where that kind of thing happens to me. I mean, it's difficult to define at what point in the process that happens, but I don't think, yeah, sort of property rights, individual rights, those sorts of things should never be up for populist votes for parties to sort of negotiate on and work on and vote to take away from people or to diminish at the same time. Because, and again, to go back to something I mentioned earlier, it's becoming a game of which party can give you the most stuff and just give us enough power to give you these things. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and part of that picture is that you assume that to give a house or internet access or whatever else to someone else, you need to take it from another person. So it's a very zero sum game at the moment. It's not win-win, it's not growth, it's not, not prosperity. It's very much about taking from some to give to others. And again, that the success of some people is due to the fact that they took from other people in the first place. So there's, it's simply about wealth exchanging hands in a way. It's never about 
how do we create an environment where wealth can be created kind of thing. It's a very fixed mentality, fixed pie kind of thing. Every year we have the GDP and it should be divided up amongst 60 million people and, you know, white people somehow take more and this group gets less because it's it's me versus you and this group versus that group sort of thing. So I, I wish I could give you a sort of silver bullet. I mean, maybe the, the Canton system actually. Um, yeah. If, if the viewers and listeners would want to explore yeah, yeah. that I mean, sort that, of thing. That, that's the one that, that's usually brought up. But the problem is, is, I think, or perhaps you can comment on this. It's just that the culture and the the way in which it evolved happened over a very long period of time in Switzerland to, to have it actually be natural and have those communities, you know, form in the cantons that they did. And that's something that happened naturally. And now they're fighting in a large part to keep it like, okay, this canton has this mentality. But do you think that will even work in South Africa? Because I mean, it has to evolve naturally. Otherwise, you will have some scenario where it's like Middle East, you know, drawing straight borders type conflict. Yeah, I think we we're engaging in proper thought experiments here because that sort of thing requires you to to discount a, a country's or a location's history. And as we know, there are, f I mean, every country has its challenges and complexity, but there are few on the level of complexity and history of South Africa. We really are <laughs> yeah. uh, in many ways a miracle and in many ways, you know, very, very complex. So the Canton system, I think, is a is a solid idea couched in very strong uh, theory how to get there i'm not going to be able to give you a roadmap um the the current president of the free market foundation leon Lowe, he and his wife francis kendall wrote a book called south africa the solution many decades ago um, and that specifically focused on the idea of the canton system in south africa so to the viewers and listeners i would definitely recommend going to read that i mean yeah leon would be would it be good to sort of read on that specific subject on how you would actually practically implement this kind of thing. I, I mean, maybe we'll get there in any case, if we see the sort of fracturing of South Africa, I don't know if the country will fracture to the point of actual secession and different groups yeah. sort of breaking up, but maybe then you will see different regional bodies. Maybe in KZN, you will have a monarchy, for example, maybe in the Western Cape, you'll have, a parliamentary system who's to say um maybe in Joburg I don't know Joburg is going to be a free-for-all that's just yes. going to be anarchy so. <laughs> anarchy <laughs> um but yeah I think these are these are good and important questions about what would work better for me it's a more of a principles meta point around whatever dispensation and system we have individual rights must be paramount and then from there I think liberty will inevitably increase yeah so um, let's bring it back a bit to the Free Market Foundation. And you, of course, host a podcast, uh, which I think is you know a bit more sophisticated than ours necessarily, but you have a lot more guests. And I wanted to know specifically, you know, what has been your best guests so far? What have been the nicest people to talk to? You know, as partially as a tip to us, you know, that'd be nice. But also from yourself, from your own perspective, which are the people that were really inciting, uh, insightful or exciting to talk to? Number one would have to be Franz Kronier, uh, who okay. I've already mentioned from the RR, and the, he also works at the Center for Risk Analysis. Um, I think his his knowledge and insight into all things happening in South Africa is second to none. So he, I think he he's definitely one of the favorites, um, and he he's able to respond to a whole range of questions quite well. I think so. One can touch on economics, you can touch on socio political things, um, law, that kind of thing. I think. 
he was probably at the, the very top of the list. Um, having the this current CEO of ESCOM on, Andre De Reiter, that was a great privilege, um, and I really enjoyed that one. Um, you know, he, from the outside looking in, obviously ESCOM is in a mess, and that's to put it mildly. So one wonders what kind of person would want to take on that sort of role and try and fix that particular state-owned enterprise. I don't know if anyone would be willing to fix any of South Africa's state-owned enterprises. They're all in a proper mess at the moment. But he, I thought he came across quite well. Um, he tried to handle the questions, I think, as well as one could in his position. It's a, it's an unenviable position, but I think he, he handled them quite well. And then thirdly would be Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research, who I interviewed last year. I think it was in June or July when we still thought the pandemic would be over within three or four months. <laughs> yeah. uh, we all fooled ourselves. So he... Uh, he and his organization, they've done a lot of commentary and writing on the pandemic, on government responses, obviously focused quite a bit on America, but they've they've also published things from other places around the world, like New Zealand, um, Sweden, that kind of thing. So he was also very good, uh, very, very good in, in talking about these principles and how, how government policies impact people's lives. So it's always nice to get to talk to someone who can link the... Because we, I mean, we talk about stuff like capitalism, communism, classical liberalism, and linking the ideas to the concrete examples on the ground. So how adopting a certain uh, ideology or policy affects someone's life on the ground, on the street, you know, how that will impact them. So I think Jeffrey Tucker was probably probably number three. There's too many. And, and I'm sure there's going to be people who, when we finish the interview, I'm going to wish I'd mentioned their names. So yeah. I have to apologize to all of them. I mean, it's just great to get to talk to so many people. So and yeah. hopefully generating some discussion from from their side as well. There's also the issue of, or not the issue, but whether one wants to engage with someone who's ideologically, diametrically opposed to one. So should it, would it be a good thing to have a committed marxist professor for example and have that discussion i guess if you can if you can define the rules well and yeah. you can say you know we're going to not engage in ad hominem personal attacks let's stick to these three policy points or whatever then it could be interesting i think but you know these things these things can in their own way spiral out of control so it depends on the on the sort of discussion one wants to have yeah i mean those are really difficult to control because you really can't I mean, you, you, you can really go in with the most objective perspective you possibly have uh, going into a conversation. And then when you start hitting on the stuff that really hits home, you know, that's the part of which it's the most difficult to keep it together. Mm -hmm. um, but I also want to talk about some of the stigmas specifically about classic liberalism and the Free Market Foundation, what you represent, because there's so much of a, um, I, don't, I don't want to say like a scapegoat scenario, but there really is sometimes where the issues that you talk about specifically deals with having conflicting opinions, having strong opinions, and then putting the objective natures together and then talking about it, creating the conversation. And because of that, people try and find um, scenarios in which where because of certain factors about the Free Market Foundation, they just want to discredit you in any way possible. So there's one we want to talk about specifically, and as that is that there's, um, I don't know if it's if it's a report or if it's a known fact, but that Johan Rupert uh, supports uh, the Free Market Foundation, uh, Foundation financially. And that's been something that people, because, you know, he's been tied up in many, many a controversy um, because of you know, a number of reasons, but, you know, some legitimate, some not. But because of that, they're trying to ascribe that anybody that he financially supports then obviously, you know, holds his opinion above anybody else. And then that makes it complex. So how do you respond to this type of scenario, these type of criticism as 
as a company and, a, and individually? So I really think, you know, being reliant on donations and funding and that sort of thing places any think tank in a potentially difficult position and one has to hold one's own and you need to internally decide how far you want to go or not. So before you engage with anyone, you'll make sure that there are certain things that are simply off the table that you won't engage on or sort of quote unquote give up. So on Johan Rupert specifically, he funds, he helps to fund the, the Free Market Foundation's Kai Alam Land Reform Project. Um, that project we can get into more details on, but broadly speaking, we work with municipalities and companies around the country to facilitate the transfer of title deeds to people who have never had these title deeds. So some of them have lived in their homes for generations of they've never had that little piece of paper that means that their home is actually their yes. home. So I think for you, Han, and obviously, you know, he can speak on his own behalf. So I'm sort of projecting onto him. But I think for him, there's a lot about trying to make South Africa a better country. And he thinks the transfer of title deeds and sort of unlocking of property is one of those ways to do that, which is why I would I would imagine he supports a project such as Kyalum. Um I think also there's the matter of, you know, if if one is sort of worried about one's financial position, then one might become more willing to give up certain principles. So again, it's up to the internal organization to decide, you know, on these three things, we'll talk to whomever, if it's someone who, if it's another organization who's hardcore Marxist, if they want to support us on these things, then there's some things we just, one wouldn't give up kind of thing. So I think it depends on each one to decide for themselves, all these different organizations. And of course, I guess this depends on one's own view of people and their character and that sort of thing. So if there's someone and I, yeah, if there's someone who's very, who you see as morally reprehensible, if they try and atone later in their life, do you think that's still a good thing? Should that be accepted or not? I mean, we see a lot of stuff now around cancel culture, of course, um, and people quote unquote, paying for their sins of, of earlier years, maybe when they were in high school or um, sort of in their teens, when we all make exceedingly stupid decisions, one could argue people make stupid decisions throughout their whole life. It's not just when you're in your teens. So whether you think someone, you know, can can do good throughout their life, or whether you should only focus on some of the, the bad things that they did, um, if they support a given organization. So it's a, I think it's a multifaceted point. I think it's a good point and a good question, how far one is willing to go. Um, and I think it's again, up to each organization to decide, of course, looking in from the outside, one can also try and judge whether an organization sticks to its principles or not, whether it seems to go with the wind or not, as has been said of a certain political party in the last 10 or so years. Uh, whether they, mm -hmm. you know, play to where they think they'll win or not sort of thing. So yeah. from the outside, we have our own commentary and discussions to deliver. And it would be interesting to know internally what mm. they would have sort of said about these sorts of things. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a complex question. I hope I've covered at least some aspect yeah. of it because it's not an easy thing to answer, of course, as well. And I don't know if there's a perfect answer as such, uh, unless one has, yeah, if Ayn Rand was our funder and she had, she left, sort of in perpetuity, just, mm. you know, 50 million rand every year, then I think we could very much be very happy about about that sort of thing. Um, and one wouldn't have to worry about any of those considerations. But that's just sort of that in a nutshell.
Yeah, and there's also, I think, an element um, from my own perspective now, I think there's an element of transparency that's then required. It's like if you take money from a certain point, uh, person and everybody wants to critique you because you took money of them, by all means, then just make your actions more transparent so they can right. judge whether you have changed your perspectives on you know, certain things based on point after you receive money or point before you receive money. You know, it's like it's like a it's like a give and take because as as a foundation that lives off of donations, you cannot possibly say no to every foundation because that person might have a conflicting viewpoint to you. It's, I mean, you're not going to exist that way. Um, so in that regard, perhaps some transparency is is you know a, a kind of a way to go to clear your name. Um, but to go back to the socio-economic um, uh, factors specifically, we have the scenario in South Africa where every time um, something happens where the state takes more control or wants to take land, for example, with expropriation without compensation, a lot of, of conservative South Africans just say, okay, well, you just look north, there's Zimbabwe, they did it, it turned out horribly, this is going to be the same scenario. You know, they, ha they have that example the same way. But the thing is, Zimbabwe isn't the only example. It's not the only example that's applicable to the scenario. We have a situation in Venezuela at the moment where massive inflation is absolutely destroying the people's ability to um, provide food at, at any reasonable rate or provide for their families at any reasonable rate. Could you perhaps you know, respond to the typical, uh, I want to say Marxist rather than socialist, uh, Marxist criticism that they're in the situation they're currently are because not because of their policies, but because of their sanctions and their international vilification. And this is always another factor other than the core philosophy around around their policies. I just had to mute myself because I heard a helicopter. Hopefully no, someone's right. coming to the foundation to come and end our conversation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um yeah i think that's a great question and a great point it's it's interesting that i think these examples that you bring up venezuela zimbabwe north korea i mean the former soviet union hmm. parts of of europe i think um eastern europe even canada to an extent the us i think is going in a very concerning direction these are sort of you know the the when, when these policies don't work out, they're held up as failures of socialism. I think these are successes of socialism. I think socialism aims at making everyone equal, whether that's equally poor or not is never defined. But there's, there's egalitarianism. Um, the workers' revolution, quote-unquote, is happening. I think one should change the conversation and terminology completely and say, but by your own definition these are the ends that you wanted you wanted people to be equal you wanted uh, people to be free from capital and evil capitalists and that kind of thing well they all left they all left venezuela so isn't that a good thing surely then there's the matter of like there's the matter of of judging by that own ideology standards whether it's successful or not and just trying to find objective standards so if you say just take two if you say agency and prosperity are the two things that you think are most important for for sort of a, a country to achieve what are the best routes to get there practically speaking but also morally speaking i think if your ideology or system holds individuals as mere units or mere parts of a collective um, sort of, sh I guess, brainless sheep to be led by an enlightened leader or Politburo yeah. or philosopher or, you know, committee kind of thing. That to me indicates how you view your fellow human beings. And you can have all the lofty, nice rhetoric around, we want to achieve a worker's paradise, we want to achieve enlightenment and prosperity and stuff. 
But if your if your ideology from a moral perspective sees people as just units sort of, you know, stupid and waiting to be led, the consequences are going to be um, concomitantly devastating. It's within, there's this, there's this sort of idea and saying that um, policy is downstream from ideology. And I think, you know, practical effects are downstream from ideology. So the worldview that you have and man, you know, in the sense human and, and humans place in the world and what they're capable of or not will determine what sort of ideology you advocate for. So if you think people are incapable of action, if you think they're feckless, if you think um, they're fundamentally weak, that sort of thing, I think you might lean towards an ideology that wants some some power, and in this case, the state, to have power to you know help people and, and lift them up kind of thing. But, you know, you, you just run into the constraints of reality. There's always going to be competing groups. This group might portend to speak for the revolution, and then they have a competing group that's going to speak for it. I think that's why in societies that lean more socialist and collectivist, broadly speaking, you have higher stakes between who ultimately wins in being con in charge of the government. I mean, even in South Africa, I think the stakes are ever increasing because our government has so much power. So it becomes a more cutthroat violent game of this group needs to win because then they can look after their own and care for themselves at the cost of everyone else of course mm -hmm. um but that becomes the perspective it's a very sort of uh dog eat dog violent world view i think and violent perspective so yeah i think the best retort to the sort of marxist socialist point on venezuela north korea that kind of thing is simply that to the extent that socialism authoritarianism less economic freedom is tried people's lives are more difficult right. it's not to say that it's you know ever perfect socialism but to the extent that you head towards perfect socialism people's lives become more difficult and um and i think fundamentally poorer to the extent that economic freedom is tried on the other hand where you have the rule of law stronger property rights um free speech freedom of the press that kind of thing. You see people on in general doing better off. It's also not perfect. It's not utopian. I don't think anyone advocating for classical liberalism should portend that we're going to achieve utopia because yeah. fundamentally resources are finite. People make mistakes. That sort of thing. If you think, you know, if you realize that, you know, it might for some people be a bit of a, it might be a bit disillusioning, but if yeah. you realize that every human being is going to make mistakes you should try and advocate for that sort of system where your worst enemies don't have as much political power that they can lord over you. So for mm -hmm. someone on the left, imagine that Donald Trump has ultimate power kind of thing. That's mm -hmm. your worst nightmare. So why mm -hmm. would you want the government to be that powerful as it would be in a socialist state, for example? Limit right. the control and reach that government can put into your life as much as possible. And then it doesn't become this case of me versus you the whole time. Our lives shouldn't be nearly as much dominated by politics as it is. Life is about so much more than politics. I mean, you know, your values, art, philosophy, mm. TVs, movies, your family, your society, your church, your synagogue. But now it's becoming a case of it's simply about which party you vote for. And it destroys, I think, fundamentally the fabric of society. It destroys families. You know, a brother might vote Democrat and a um, yeah. sister vote Republican. And then it's the end of their relationship. I think yeah. life should be about a lot more than that. 
Yeah, and we've seen so many examples. I mean, I just I, I love that message though because it is inherently positive in the sense that you know we're really caught up in this and people are changing the way that they live their lives based on how they vote. Whereas it should rather be something that you know is debated on less less important matters, less controlled matters. We I mean we definitely saw a couple of examples. I mean these these are only the ones that we saw that actually got out on social media. You know where brother and sister voted differently and that led to some severe i mean some of the stupid examples of me is the people that put razor blades on their political signs outside their garden lawn i'm like that's that's messed up dude <laughs> seriously there should not be a scenario where one you put razor blades on it, and there should also be not be a scenario where somebody wants to maliciously pull out your signs out of their front garden like that doesn't go well either way um that's actually such a great message i, I would have liked to end the podcast on that i just have a couple of a bit more questions uh, specifically because you had a unique insight into escom's current situation and what's trying to be done you know trying to fix a situation like that you mentioned yourself as not sure something that anybody wanted to do, but you know, it's it's kind of being done. Do you, do you think, based off of that conversation, that we can solve an electricity problem in South Africa? <laughs> I think again, it goes to the view of that the current government takes of itself, because at the moment it's very. I mean, the current government is informed ideologically by the National Democratic Revolution, the idea that the party should control the levers of power in society to alleviate poverty, unemployment, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> mm. I mean, you know, it, it goes that far. If the if the party, if the ANC in some way, you have two perspectives on this. You have the perspective of if it can reform, it can do the right things. But then you have the other perspective of there is fundamentally no reform within the ANC. It's all to a greater or less extent supporting the National Democratic revolution from a practical point of view and trying to be sort of policy specific i think you can see progress if the government for example allows people to go off the grid if they allow mining companies to sell electricity to the communities around them if they allow municipalities to do their own work so the more well-run municipalities in the western cape let them do their own thing it's the same thing with i think healthcare and the idea of the national health insurance let people and now with electricity, let people who want to pay for it and generate their own stuff do that. The state can focus on actually fixing its systems and its ailing infrastructure and providing electricity electricity to those people who can't afford it kind of thing. Yeah. Then you open it up to competition. You allow companies to compete. And this can be solar, hydro. Yeah. I mean, I would, ho I would want nuclear. I, I really like yeah. nuclear. Um, gas and have them compete for that sort of thing. And you have customers go across different ones. I think this is the case in New Zealand. It's the case in the US. I think in some European countries as well, you can, if you're not happy with your provider, you can move. You see, the problem is when you have, as ESCOM is, you have a state enforced monopoly in electricity. There's yeah. no choice. People can't go anywhere. I mean, all choice that you have is whether you use a candle or not, a candle or not. So there's yeah. the joke about what did the socialist use before the candle? electricity oh. <laughs> oh yes it's like the millionaires uh, sorry the billionaire in, uh, yeah, in exactly. space flight yes became a so, millionaire so yeah it's a it's a case of vested interests as well of course uh, it's a now before every election the government can try and alleviate load shedding and then tell people see we did well vote for us kind yeah. of thing so it's a it's that, that part of it as well and giving up control and again the hubris point of thinking we can run this this uh, monopoly on electricity and provide electricity to 60 million people. Mm. So there are gaps there for reform. I think if you have the right people in place, you can sort of chip away 
at the control that ESCOM has over the country. Of course, its, it's debt is a huge threat. Uh, ESCOM's debt, I think, is approaching. If it's not past 500 billion rand, it's probably past that by now. And if it defaults on that debt, it affects the whole economy. I think South Africa arguably would then collapse. Yeah, uh, The banks would collapse and that kind of thing. So you need to minimize that risk. There are some people, I think, who want to do the right things. Whether that will actually happen or not is another matter altogether. Yeah. yeah. Um, lastly, I just want to talk about, I mean, you, you joked slightly about it, uh, that you said somebody's arriving with a helicopter to stop our conversation. Uh, we're in the lucky scenario in South Africa that we frankly have a quite free scenario in terms of voicing our opinions. And this is something that I think we should we should value more yeah. than anything else is the ability to have a conversation, doesn't matter how opposing our conversation, sorry, our opinions is. Um, but, you know, we have seen some movement towards uh, government wanting to tax, license and control internet media in the same way it does already with uh, with radio and with television. Um, operating your own podcast, you're operating on, on the internet as this type of environment that allows anybody and anyone to say anything that they want to. Is this something that you're afraid of? Do you think we're even heading in a scenario where we're going to be censored? Or, or, or is this type of like a, a fear-mongering technique that's perhaps propagated too often? No, I think I think one can definitely see a scenario where we head in that direction. I mean, even last year there was a bill around sports and recreation where the government wanted to sort of impose certain quotas and things on your local sports club, your little community oh, yeah. rugby club kind of thing. So mm. every now and then we see we hear noises from government that they want to at that even at that level control what we say and do. And you know, I've I very much for all the issues that people have with the US, for example, and and what goes on there, if one looks at, you know, with the former president, Donald Trump, the fact that people, that newspapers and people online could criticize him to the extent that they did showed you that the US is still in a relatively good position. It might not be heading in a good direction, but when you, when you can criticize your elected officials, and they are elected after all, they're not anointed, it's not the divine right of kings, as I think many of them often forget, when you have that sort of respect for discussion and robustness and engagement, your society isn't that bad off. Um, there might be some practical issues and that kind of thing, but in general, at least you can discuss ideas and that sort of thing. So I think the more desperate a government uh, becomes to stay in power, maybe it'll crack down more on certain discussions and, and ban certain things. Of course, I think the internet for many of its flaws is a great force for good and connecting people around the world and the sharing of ideas as we're doing now. So for as long as we have some measure of economic freedom, that'll still be a good thing. I mean, we saw recently in, in Myanmar with yeah. the, the sort of coup there and people couldn't use the internet. I think it was the same. Uh, there was an African country, uh, might've been, it wasn't Rwanda, I think, but another African country with an election recently um, mm -hmm. in Uganda, sorry where the official opposition you know, leader, he was put in his home on election day, the, the government switched off the internet, so people couldn't even talk about what was happening in polling stations. They didn't allow UN observers into those stations. Mm. So you see what happens when governments decide to go on that route. I think there's always the potential for that. One should never assume that things are, okay. are perfect. I think it, it was probably Jefferson, but again, you'll have to check me here and people in the comments can savage me if I'm incorrect, but I think it was Jefferson or Franklin. Okay, I'll, I'll give myself an out there. Who said the eternal price of liberty, vigilance is the eternal price of liberty. Yeah. So 
at every opportunity and in every way you should push back you should comment on you should submit things to the government you should support organizations like the fmf the rr sakaliha afri forum solidarity all of them who try and hold government accountable to some extent um mm -hmm. and i think yeah you know, make sure that no matter how quote unquote small the infraction on liberty is these small infractions add up over time so south africa might not become a dictatorship overnight but it could become a dictatorship over a period of 50 or 100 years yeah and having having like the slowly boiling toad scenario uh with uh, the way that freedom of speech is going definitely is something that you could actually see happening and not prepare for uh, in advance that's why it's intensely supporting anybody that um, uh, keeps the government in check is actually so important and of course you know having the conversation keep going like giving different ideas giving different perspectives realizing perhaps because this is one of the most subtle way in which we can be censored is realizing that people have a different perspective to us because that can be one way if, if like if the government is able to through media control you know, paralyze people's perspectives into to one or two groups, then you can very easily think that there isn't somebody else with another other perspective than either yours or an opposing one. And if you have that scenario, that's actually even more, you know, removing the complexity actually removes the ability for people to differentiate that there might be different people. Um, anyways, this has been such a fantastic discussion. I don't want to waste any more of your time. Um, I just want to ask you if there's anything else you wanted to uh, add by the end or, or end off with. Again, putting me on the spot here, I have to give you something <laughs> insightful something you want to plug. And, we'll and sort of to add, chew on. By the way, we'll definitely add um, Francis Correa's book um, in the description below because that sounds really interesting. A lot of people talk about the Canton system in South Africa, but very few people think about how practically it might be implemented. So perhaps that's the discussion we should be ha ha having. It's like, how are we going to actually do this? Sorry, you want to say something? No, no. Um, I think that's a good idea if you can if you can link to, to, to that book especially. Um, I just think it's a, it's a case of stepping back a little bit and out of the day today and realizing just how how much potential we do have and what system allows us to sort of live out that potential in the best sort of way with i i mean i'm a fan of multiculturalism dynamism engaging with different people from around the world and i think fundamentally the system that leads in that direction is classical liberalism and economic freedom so selfishly as an objectivist i want to live in that sort of world where people around me are better off as well and where they have the best chance to succeed and where you don't just rely on the state for 350 rand month kind of thing. I think, I think economic freedom achieves the sort of radical transformation and progress in a positive sense that, that so many people want and not the quote unquote radical economic transformation that we often hear about. Um, so I think that's just important to keep in mind. And if you haven't yet, all I can say is read Atlas Shrugged. Okay. Sorry, said the name again? Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Shrugged. Okay. Yeah. By whom is that? Do you know? By Ayn Rand. By Ayn Rand. Okay. Yeah. Well, definitely. Yeah. No, definitely. No, like I, just, like, I read through her Wikipedia page before this, but I think definitely okay. reading the book might be a way more conclusive uh, argument to, to check out. But yeah, first of all, thank you so much for, uh, for, for speaking to us and having this discussion. I think it's really important. It's what we're trying to do is get the most diverse perspectives and worldviews on here. Um, and to our viewers, if you've made it thus far, you most definitely like the discussion either or we're at least interested in it. Um, so if you want to have this perspective, perspective be shared with everybody else, please, by all means, share this. Um, it doesn't only help our Chris, it also helps with the channel for us in terms of getting the message around there. Um, of course, you know, this costs money to run. So if you want to financially support us, you can check us out at Patreons. All of the links of all the things we discussed will be in the description below. So thank you so much for watching. This has been Worldview. Thank you.